I am Socrates. Chaerophon has returned from the Oracle at Delphi with, he tells me, important news. He says he asked of the all-knowing prophetess, the Pythia, who in all the world is wiser than his friend Socrates? She told him, none. I am Socrates. The statement astounds me. If Zeus had split my head open with a thunderbolt, I would be less amazed. Me, the wisest of all men. Impossible, for I know nothing, nothing at all. Yet the oracle never lies. Well then, in my unrelenting quest for truth, I conceive of a way to test the oracle's declaration. I find the great wise men of Athens in the public places, the poets and politicians and scholars, and I question them in hopes of hearing their wisdom. Young men begin to follow me in the marketplaces, eager to listen, but I only find in my search a few worthy individuals, just one or two I'd call genius, yet not a dram of wisdom. What does this mean? It cannot be that I am wise. I know this for a fact. Yet the oracle insists that all other men are even less wise than foolish me. My search among them proves this to be the case. So then, what makes me wise in a way that these others are not? I finally realize, after much thought, that I may be the wisest only because I know I am unwise. This becomes the bedrock of my philosophy, the humility to understand that I have no understanding. It is truly all that separates me from the others. Born to the sculptor Sophronicus and the midwife Phanerite, my father trained me in his work, and my early years were filled with the study of music, gymnastics, and grammar. I grew up in wartime, the Spartans constantly attacking our great city-state of Athens, Serving as a hoplite in many of these wars, I famously saved General Alcibiades from certain death at Potidaea and received acclaim for my exploits in Delium. Apart from my troublesome mouth, my life was a normal one. Xanthippa, a woman rather above my station and looks, agreed to marry me when I was fifty. Her tongue was even sharper than my own, though our sons Lamprocles, Sophroniscus, and Menexenus had none of our wit at all. Yet my unkempt appearance and ugly face didn't prevent me from becoming a superintendent and delegate, and my opinion was considered sound. The sunset of my years seemed set, at least until Chaerophon asked the Oracle of Delphi his preposterous question. I have no thoughts of my own. All my philosophy comes from my esteemed elders, such as Prodicus the Rhetor, and Anaxagoras the philosopher. I learned the art of rhetoric from Aspasia, the mistress of Pericles. I was taught the arts of love by the witch and priestess Diatima. I am an empty vessel, filled by their discoveries and inventions. My only contribution is all my impertinent questions. The longer I live, the more convinced I am that truth can only be found in dialogue. Come, investigate a concept with me. Make a statement, something you consider to be true. Then I will identify what the core of your statement is, 
and ask what makes that core concept true. We shall peel this onion together, removing layer after layer until we find the essence of the thing. Why would you do this? Why have I devoted myself to asking you to? It is because it is profitable to us both. To me, because in my efforts to find someone wiser than myself and prove the oracle wrong, I found that people tend to speak on subjects they know little or nothing about. When I began my quest, I found this disturbing, until I realized that I could help them understand that, like me, they actually knew nothing. Our talking together is of profit to me, because I believe the most important goal one can set for oneself is the improvement of the soul, and I want to help people attain that goal by encouraging them to recognize their ignorance and pursue true knowledge. Our talk is profitable to you because, if you allow for it, you will realize that for most of your life, you have been talking about subjects you only thought you knew but did not truly know at all. People apply labels to themselves student, teacher, doctor, lawyer, poet, priest, and then speak in accordance with the roles they have given themselves. But these roles are make-believe. They are shadows we hide in to present ourselves to others as wiser than we really are. Actually, we are all just human beings doing the best we can in the darkness and in need of a light, or, as I call myself, a gadfly, to wake us up and make us realize we have been sleepwalking through most of life believing in what we have been taught and the roles we have given ourselves without once ever questioning whether what we claim to be true is, in fact, true. It is this pursuit of unvarnished truth that leads me to question, or as my detractors would say, harass my fellow citizens. It is my interest in helping them improve their souls which drives me, for example, to discuss piety with Euthyphro on the courthouse steps. He claimed to know what piety was, what the gods loved most, in accordance with the role he had given himself as a prophet. But he was no prophet. He was only a young man claiming to know what could not be known. This same pursuit of truth is what commands me to uphold the essence of the law during the trial of the six commanders. I debate the nature of life itself with my students, many of whom go on to invent entire schools of philosophy which cannot coexist. Aristippus of Cyrene founds the Hedonist school, Antisthenes the Cynic school. The two could not be further apart in their vision, and yet both were my students. Plato devotes his school to revealing ultimate truth. Alcibiades the general devotes his life to pleasure. Critias to the acquisition of power. Xenophon to military service. And all were my students. Truth is impossible to fix in place, and understanding is fleeting. Life is meant to be examined. What else will occupy our busy brains day by day? Each thought and action are marks we make on our souls, and my examination has taken me to the roots of creation. There, at the center of it all, I find nothing but virtue. In this world of gods and men, there is ultimately nothing but to live a life in accordance with goodness, piety, and sacrifice— not wealth, nor slaves, nor great estates, but the improvement of the soul should be our goal. Virtue alone carries value. 
The great challenge is in divining virtue in a world of shadows and half-truths. But without virtue, we are unmoored from the natural world, the gods themselves, and our own true natures. My beliefs are tested again and again. I am mocked on a daily basis for my looks, but none can deny the dialectics of my dialogues that issue forth like a stream of crystal-clear water. Never hedge or obfuscate. Merely answer the simple question put before you. Cleave the truth like meat from the bone. Stand in honor before the gods. Finally, I say too much. Now I stand on the steps of the Athenian state prison, defending myself from charges of impiety. I have eroded faith in our gods, in Athens, in democracy itself. My former student Critias has used my words to justify becoming a tyrant. Alcibiades has forsaken us and joined Sparta. Now my hour has come. Friends beg me to flee the city and wait for this storm to pass. But how could a virtuous man accept that path? You are guilty, Socrates, they tell me. Now, if you are so wise, what should the sentence be for an impious old man? I tell them I should join the heroes of the Olympics in the Pritaneum, where I would be acclaimed and given free food and drink. For that insult, they demand my death. But what is philosophy, if not a training for death? And what is there in death that should be feared? We know nothing of what waits on the other side. To fear death is to claim knowledge we do not have. It is to continue playing the role of one who knows what one does not know. Whatever waits for me on the other side, I welcome the opportunity to learn of it. They hand me a cup of hemlock poison. I stare at the cup, seeing it as nothing more than a final test of my virtue. I am seventy-one. My life has been long. I drink from the cup. After my death, Plato tells the story of my life and teachings. In truth, these are not my words, but mainly his. He and Xenophon take it upon themselves to chronicle my life. But my words were hatched like eggs on the wind, too fleeting for writing down. Soon Plato founds his academy, and his student Aristotle founds his lyceum in turn, and his student Alexander the Great spreads these ideas across the entire world after I am long dead. Yet I am nothing but a humble man who asked too many questions. I only know that I know nothing. I am Socrates. This recording was brought to you by Ancient History Encyclopedia. For more great articles and interactive content, visit www.ancient.eu. You can find a video version of this article on the YouTube channel The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages by following the link in the description below. Ancient History Encyclopedia is a non-profit organisation. If you would like to support our work, visit www.ancient.eu forward slash support or follow the links in the description below.